word, and we thank you that we can be here and begin to focus on you and, and what your word has to say. And as we see that this was given to a nation uh, so many years ago, millenniums ago, um, we know that this is also for us because we are a holy nation, as Peter writes in his epistle. And Lord, I pray that we can make application that tonight we can see the pattern, the, the duties that you desire for us to, um, in our own lives individually and duties perhaps in our families and uh, what you have spelled out in this church where we fit and that you have something for us to do and we can be encouraged tonight. And so bless this time the study of your word as we're in the book of Numbers. May you open our ears to hear what it is that you want to say to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Numbers chapter 4, we read, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Koath from among the children of Levi by their families, by their father's house, from 30 years old and above even to 50 years old, all who entered the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. And you recall, as we left off at this last time, that the Levites are assisting the priests in the tabernacle ministry. You recall that in the book of Leviticus, of course, there was all the duties and of the priests that were spelled out, their specific uh, ministry in, in presenting the sacrifices, doing the sacrifices, the ministry inside the tabernacle. Now remember that the tabernacles that sat in the middle of the camp, only the priests were allowed to go into the tabernacle. No one else was allowed to go in there, not even the Levites. Now every priest was a Levite because Aaron, the direct descendants of Aaron, they were the priests. They were from the tribe of Levi, but there was other families as well in the tribe of Levi, and so God has chosen them to come along the priests, not to do the priestly duties, they are excluded from that, but they have their own duties that are being told to us here in the book of Numbers, particularly chapters 3 that we saw last week, the general duties that these different families were involved in, the Gershonites, the Maronites, and the Kohathites, and so we see that as we go into chapter 4, specifically how they were to perform these duties are going to be told to us. And so here are the Levites assisting Aaron and his sons, who are going to be the priests, in that tabernacle ministry. And so we see that they would minister from the age of 30 years old to 50 years old, and they would minister uh, to the priests there as we see their specific duties are spelled out to us once again Verse 4, this is the service of the sons of Koath in the tabernacle of meeting relating to the most holy things. When the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his son shall come, and they shall take down the covering veils and cover the ark of the testimony with it. When the camp prepares to journey. And so verse 5 uh, catches my attention as I look at that because life is a journey for us, isn't it? Life is a journey for us individually. It's a journey for our families. It's a journey for us congregationally. And I know that as I journey through this life, I want to know how it is that the Lord desires for me to live. I want to know the duties, the patterns, the, the will that God has for me and the work that, that he spells out in his word and then how to do that work. And so that's why we can make application here tonight is because as we look at this, this reminds us that God gives us very specific th things to do as Christians, commandments, and how it is that we are to live and to walk in his ways, to walk in his truths. And I want to know those, and then I know that as I do, that my life is going to be blessed, and I'm going to experience that abundant life. And so when the camp prepares the journey, this is what's going to happen. The Kohathites are going to be responsible again, as we saw in chapter 3, 
for the, the furnishings, the carrying of the furnishings. But this is how it was to be done. Again, in verse 5, Aaron and his son shall come. They shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. And then they shall put on it covering of badger skins and spread over that a cloth entirely of blue, and they shall insert its poles. Now remember, as they're dealing with the furnishings, in the book of Exodus, you might recall, for example, the altar of incense in the holy place, the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place, that they had rings that are on the corners of those furnishings. So the priests are actually going to go in and they're going to cover those furnishings up with the badger skins and what's described to us in these verses. And they're going to insert those poles in so when they're done, then the Levites are going to come in and bear it on their shoulders. And so the Levites didn't just come barging into the tabernacle and begin to cover up everything and and say, priest, get out of the way, we'll take care of this. There was a very specific order in which things were to be done that the Lord spells out here in his word. And so the priests, you're the ones that are going to cover the Ark of the Covenant, cover the other furnishings, and then the Levites can come in. And so this was important instructions given to them on how they were to do that. Remember that the poles were made of a kale wood lined with gold. So those poles would be heavy and the furnishings would be heavy as well because most of them were made of gold. But on verse 7, the table of showbread, again, that was in the holy place. They shall open a spread that is a blue cloth and put its, the dishes, the pans, the bowls, and the pitchers for pouring and the showbread shall be on it. And they shall spread over them a, a scarlet cloth and cover the same with the covering of badger skins. And they shall insert its poles. And they shall take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand of the light with its lamps, its wick trimmers, its trays, and all the oil vessels with which they service it. And then they shall put it with all its utensils and a covering of badger skins and put it on a carrying beam. Verse 11, over the golden altar, they shall spread a blue cloth and cover it with a covering of badger skins, and they shall insert its poles. And then they shall take all the utensils of service which they minister in the sanctuary, put them in a blue cloth, cover them with a covering of badger skins, and put them on a carrying beam. And also they shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread purple cloth over it. And they shall put on it all the implements with which they ministered there, the fire pans, the forks, the shovels, the basins, all the utensils of the altar. And they shall spread on it a covering of badger skins and insert its poles. In verse 15, And when Aaron and the sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Koath shall come to carry them, but they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of meaning which the sons of Koath are to carry. The appointed duty of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, is the oil for the light, the sweet incense, the daily grain offering, the anointing oil, the oversight of all the tabernacle, of all that is in it, with the sanctuary and its furnishings. And then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Do not cut off the tribe from the families of the Kohathites, from among the Levites, but do this in regard to them, that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy things. Aaron and his son shall go in and appoint each of them to his service and his task, but they shall not go in to watch while the holy things are being covered, lest they die. So as we read these verses, you can see the very specific details that are given to them. The furnishings are going to be covered with this skin, this badger skin, and the poles are going to be inserted. Tell the Kothites they're not to come in and touch the holy things, that they're only to come in and carry those things and make sure that they don't come in to watch. And so the Lord's very specific. If they come in and start 
you know, touching the Ark of the Covenant, then they're going to die. And so here is their duties given to them when the priests, and here is Eleazar, he's going to oversee the, the, the Levites, the Kothites that are going to be doing this. Uh, when they say it's okay, then they're to go in and they're to carry the holy things. One of the things t- for you and I to understand is that God, very specifically again, has order for us in our lives. As I spoke about last week and mentioned that even in the universe, when he created the universe, there's order in the universe. One of the things that evolutionists have a hard time explaining is why is there order in the universe. If they think that a big bang of some sort happened, they create the universe or begin to, uh, um, the universe had its beginnings in that way, they can't explain why there's order, why there's solar systems, and why there's galaxies, and why there's a sun and the plants rotating around it. The same with the uh, creation all around us here on this planet. There's order in that. And God, more importantly, as he comes to you and to me in his word, he says that there's order in our lives individually, isn't there? This is the way I want you to live. There's order in our family. This is the way that your family should be run and set up. And this is what I have ordained for that. There's order in the church as well. And so it's important for us, again, as we learn God's Word, and that's why I believe it's so important that we understand God's Word, go through God's Word and study it, because we do see the principles and the truth. We see the commandments and the principles spelled out for us in our lives individually, how we can have a blessed family, how we can minister effectively as the church, and what really the church is all about. And so we see that very clearly. And I want to emphasize that because good things have been done in the wrong way. Maybe in your life individually, maybe in your family, perhaps in the church. We can desire to do good things, things that we think are good for us and and perhaps that the Lord might delight in, but we can go about it all the wrong way. Here we see in Numbers chapter 4 that the Lord told the the Levites here, the Kothites, listen, do not touch the furnishings lest you should die. Don't go in and start opening up the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant saying, hey, I want to see what's in here, you know, and messing around with it. He's given warnings here. Now, David, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, what happened? Well, David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. What had happened was, as you begin those two books, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 4 is the end of the days of the judges. Samuel is the last of the judges. He's the prophet on the scene. And what had happened is the people of Israel, their hearts weren't right with the Lord at that time. They went to war against the Philistines and they lost. And what the children of Israel had done is gone to Shiloh to get the Ark of the Covenant. And so they went to battle with the Ark of the Covenant and there was a slaughter of the children of Israel. The Philistines cleaned their clocks. And they took the Ark of the Covenant, and they took it back to their you know, territory, to uh, their temple that was dedicated to, dedicated to Dagon. And what had happened was, as the Ark of the Covenant was in the hands of the Philistines, that the Lord struck the Philistines. And so they said, listen, we've got to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant. So what they did is they put it on a cart with, with an ox that would carry the Ark of the Covenant back into Israel, And so that took place, and then the Ark of the Covenant would be in someone's house for a number of years. During that time, David is running from Saul as you go through 1 Samuel. And then in 2 Samuel, you see that David becomes the king of Israel. He's bringing the nation together in unity. He begins to uh, defeat the enemy. He takes Jerusalem, and he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. So what did David do? 
He's bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. That was a good thing. He's beginning to think about he wants to establish a central place of worship for the Lord. He begins with the Ark of the Covenant. We can't just leave it in that individual's house for all these years. Let's bring it to Jerusalem. And as he does, he puts the Ark of the Covenant on a cart with an ox pulling it. He did it the Philistine way. And he's dancing before the Lord, and it's a great celebration. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, the ox stumbles, and the Ark of the Covenant is about ready to come off the cart. And this individual, Uzzah, puts his hand on the cart, on the, actually on the Ark of the Covenant, and he's struck dead by God. And so in that, we see something very important. Number one is, don't give God a hand, all right? Second of all is, you do it God's way. Don't do it the Philistine way. And even though David was sincere in what he was doing and desired to bring the Ark of the Covenant back, that was a good thing. And there was a great celebration. He was dancing before the Lord. He did not do it according to the way that God had said. He forgot about Numbers chapter 4, the verses in which we just read. Do you understand why it's important that we go through these chapters and these verses? Sometimes we can sit here and we can think, why are we going through all of this? And who cares about purple cloths and all of this? But here's the thing. We can make application for you and for me that's very important. And as we're students of the Word of God, I don't know about you, but it it continues to make me wise that, Lord, I'm beginning to understand more and more how it is that you would want me to live and my conduct and my behavior and my speech for me individually, what it is that you want for my family, what it is that you want for this church, Calvary Chapel. And sometimes churches, what they can do is they can have a desire to do good things, but they're doing it according to the world's way. And so that's why it's important that we understand that, yes, that we as the church, we're a holy nation, and the Lord desires for us to do things in a very specific way and for us to understand those things and and for us to be ones that we take heed to what the Scriptures tells us. Now, what David did was when Uzzah was struck dead, he was angry. And he didn't have any right to be angry. And he would go back to the Lord and he would end up repenting and he ended up having the Levites carry the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem on their shoulders in the way that it was supposed to be done. I pray that everything that we do in our lives, everything that we do in our families, everything that we do here at Calvary Chapel is done in a way that the Lord would prescribe for us to do, being led by the Word of God, being led by the Spirit of God that dwells in our hearts, speaking to our hearts in that still, small voice. And so here they, they were to do it this very specific way in the duties of the sons of Gershon in verse 21. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also take a census of the sons of Gershon by their father's house, by their families. From 30 years old and above even to 50 years old, you shall number them, all who enter to perform the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. And this is the service of the families of the Gershonites in serving and carrying. And they shall carry the curtains of the tabernacle and the tabernacle of meeting with this covering, the covering of badger skins that is on it, the screen for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, the screen for the door of the gate of the court, the hangings of the court, which are around the tabernacle and altar and their cords, all the furnishings for their service and all that is made for these things, so shall they serve. And Aaron and his son shall assign all the service of the sons of the Gershonites, all their tasks and all their service, and he shall appoint to them all their tasks as their duty. And this is the service of the families of the sons of Gershon in the tabernacle of meeting, and their duty shall be under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. So as Eleazar had oversaw the responsibility of the Kothites 
It is the uh, son of Aaron, his second son, the Ithamar, that is going to take over and make sure that the Gershonites as well as the Maronites are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And we know in these verses that we read, as we saw last week, that the duties of the Gershonites is they were oversight of carrying the coverings of the tabernacle. And then we see the Marites in verse 29, the sons of Marii, you shall number them by their families, by their father's house, from 30 years old and above even to 50 years old. You shall number them, everyone who enters this service, to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And this is what they must carry as all their service for the tabernacle of meeting, the boards of the tabernacle, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, and the pillars around the court with their sockets, pegs and cords, and all their furnishings, and all their service. And you shall assign to each man by name the items he must carry. This is the service of the families of the sons of Mary, as all their service for the tabernacle of meeting under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. And so what they were to do is take care of the boards, the courts, and so on. What we're going to see later on in the book of Numbers is that we're going to be told that when the tabernacle was completed, that each of the 12 tribes of Israel came and brought a gift to the Levites and to the priests. And it was the same gifts that they would bring, one for 12 days. One tribe for one day, second tribe the second day. So each of the 12 tribes for 12 days brought their gifts. And in the list of those gifts that they brought, there would be carts and oxen that would be given to the priests and to the Levites for helping them in the work of the the tabernacle. And the thing is, even though the Kohathites were the ones that carried the furnishings on their shoulders, when it came to the curtains, and of course the tabernacle wasn't that big, but it was made of pieces, as you recall, in the book of Exodus. It was something that was temporary structure that would come apart, and so these curtains would be taken off, and they would be separated, and they would be folded up, and they would put it on those carts that were given to them. So that was okay for them to carry the curtains and also to carry the boards. You recall that some of the boards were 2 feet wide and 15 feet high, and some of those boards were overlaid with gold. So they would be very, very heavy, they would be. And so they had these carts that they would carry the tabernacle building itself and the curtains and stuff. The furnishings, it was done in a different manner. And so here, again, the specific instructions given to them. And then the census of the Levites. Remember, the Levites were not numbered in chapter 1 in the other 12 tribes. And so verse 34, Moses and Aaron and the leaders of the congregation numbered the sons of Kohathites by their families and by their father's house. From 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the service for work in the tabernacle meeting. And those who were numbered by their families were 2,750. These were the ones that were numbered of the families of the Kohites, all who might serve in the tabernacle of meeting, who Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandment of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And those who were numbered of the sons of Gershon by their families and by their father's house, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the service for the work in the tabernacle of meeting. Those who were numbered by their families, by their father's house, were 2,630. And these are the ones who numbered of the families of the sons of Gershon, of all who might serve in the tabernacle of meeting, who Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandment of the Lord. Verse 42, those are the families of the sons of Mary, who are numbered by their families, by their father's house, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old. Everyone who entered the service 
for work in the tabernacle, meaning those who were numbered by their families were 3,200, and these are the ones who were numbered of the families of the sons of Mary, who Moses and Aaron numbered according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And all who were numbered of the Levites, who Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of Israel numbered by their families and by their father's houses from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone noticed that everyone who came to do the work of the service and the work of bearing burdens in the tabernacle of meaning, those who were numbered were 8,580. According to the commandment of the Lord, they were numbered by the hand of Moses, each one according to his service, according to his task, thus they were numbered by him as the Lord commanded Moses. So in this census, the three different families, the numbers are given, the totality of the Levites serving from 30 years old to 50 years old were 8,580. You say, so what? Here's the thing that we can learn from this. There's a lot of Levites that are there. The tabernacle isn't that big. Can you imagine 8,000 guys that are taking down the tabernacle and the tasks that they had? And there would be quite a bit of people that were there, crowded in a very small area, actually. But I want us to remember something. That I took note here in verse 49, that notice, or actually in verse 47, everyone who came to do the work of service. Verse 49, each according to his service, according to his task. You know what can happen in the body of Christ? Sometimes the mindset can come to a Christian, oh, well, there's a lot of people in the church. They can do the work of the ministry. They have enough help in all of this. I want you to understand something. Every single one of us have a task that the Lord desires for us to do. What that task is is between you and the Lord. But please don't ever get into the mindset of, well, other people will do it or leave it up to other people to do the work of the ministry. The Lord has a task for you to do. And so each one of these are numbered, 8,580. The Lord says, yep, I got it down. I know the numbers. I know each one, the work that they are to do. And it was important for them to do that work in the ministry that they had to the children of Israel. And you see, we as the body of Christ, that we are each members of that body, and the Lord desires to use you in a very special way, whatever that might mean. It might be praying for people right now. It might be where the Lord has you placed, that you're to focus on raising your kids in the ways of the Lord. It might be that you have opportunity to open up your home to a home fellowship. It might be whatever that the Lord gives you opportunities and, and gifts you in certain ways and puts on your heart. But don't just think, that, you know what, the Lord can't use me and he doesn't have a task for me or we'll just let everybody else do it. I can't one, help but wonder what would happen if the body of Christ at large here at Calvary Chapel, the body of Christ at large in our community, that if we caught this and said, you know what, Lord, you have something for me to do and you desire to use me, what we could accomplish for the things of God and for the kingdom of God and for the gospel. It would be absolutely amazing so that the body of Christ would function. Pastors have a saying that 20% of the people do 80% of the work in the church. I don't know if that's so true here at Calvary Chapel because so many of you serve faithfully. And I want to encourage you that wherever the Lord does have you, to be faithful in that and understand that he desires to bless you in that and what a joy it is to serve the Lord and he has a task for you. Again, it may be inside these four walls. It may be at home. It may be discipling guys at work. It may be in a ministry somewhere else outside of Calvary Chapel here that you're ministering to, to youth or to women or whatever it might be. And I hope that you enjoy what it is that you're doing. 
whatever task that he's put on your heart. I think that serving the Lord should be something that brings us great joy and, and awe and wonder. Even if it's, Lord, I have opportunities to take a tray of cookies over to somebody to bless them. Or maybe to, to call them up on the phone and pray with them. Maybe to, to work in a nursery once a month. Whatever it might be that the Lord has for you, that you would just do it freely and willingly, that you would do it with joy and that you would just say, oh, Lord, thank you. Because it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to know that God wants to use you and gift you in whatever it is that he has for you in your life. So pray about it. And just flow in that very, you know, peacefully and, and with great joy and uh, enjoy what the Lord would have for you to do. Because each of us, he has a service for us and a task and everyone to come to do the work of the Lord in the body of Christ. Chapter 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. And you shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so, and put them outside the camp, as the Lord spoke to Moses, so the children of Israel did. We know that in chapter 5, as we begin to look at this, Leviticus had in detail told them how it is that they were to deal with those who had leprosy, those who had a a certain discharge or whatever it might be. Uh, The lepers in chapter 13 Leviticus were told to be isolated outside the camp. Those who had an unclean discharge, they were put outside the camp. Leviticus chapter 15 If you were to touch a dead carcass, Leviticus chapter 21, you're considered unceremonially unclean. Now, there was practical reasons for that as well, and that was to help prevent the spread of disease. Leprosy, there was no cure. There was no treatment for it at all. And so it would spread very rapidly. And so if somebody was suspected of having leprosy, then they were taken outside the camp and inspected by the priests, as we saw in chapter 13 of Leviticus. If they were pronounced unclean, they had that disease, then they would be isolated. And of course, we talked about it in Jesus' day, even on Sunday morning, Simon the leper, where Jesus was anointed in his house. He was one that had leprosy, but he was healed of Jesus. And so um, if he had an unclean discharge, perhaps some kind of a disease or something, again, to prevent that disease from spreading, you were put outside the camp. But as we look at this again, you can be, as the Lord, and we can look at this, and we can say, well, this is kind of odd. Here the Lord is telling them how it is that they are to, to march out in the wilderness in orderly rank, how it is that they are to set up camp, and how the Levites were to be set up, and the different families and all their responsibilities and stuff. And all of a sudden we come to chapter 5, and it's talking about putting those outside the camp that are unclean. I think it makes perfect sense. Because in our own lives individually, again, and perhaps in our family and even in the church, we can be really organized. I mean, we can have things organized to the T, and things are functioning real well. But if we don't have holiness and cleanness that is in our hearts and in our souls, then we're missing the priority, right? And what the Lord is saying to us as we discuss in the book of Leviticus, listen, I don't want anything unclean in your own life. That put it outside. Don't be conformed to this world, as Paul would write in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may know what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. So keep taking in the things of the Lord and stay close to the Lord. Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, we're not called to uncleanness, we're called to holiness. It would be Leviticus chapter 19 that Peter would borrow from as he was talking about we're a holy nation, we're a royal priesthood, that we are called to holiness. And so holiness is to be a part of our lives. And so those things that are unclean or unhealthy or sinful or cause us to be carnal, we want to put outside of our lives, don't we? We don't want it coming and consuming our hearts. We don't want it in our homes. We want to protect our homes from those things, don't we? We want to be careful of those things that perhaps are unclean or cause us to, to, to sin or cause us to be carnal out of our homes. In this church, we want those things outside, and we want, don't want those things spreading. And so it was the danger of leprosy spreading throughout the camp, and it is sin that can spread throughout the camp. Paul talks about that to the Corinthian believers. He said, listen, don't you know that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven is the picture of sin. And he says, purge out the leaven, therefore. And you are to be a church that holiness is to be a part of it. So when we talk about all of this, we can really focus on, hey, let's be organized. Let's you know, have everything done. God is a God of decency and order. But holiness is the priority in our lives. And so we can't forget that. And then in verse 5, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. When a man or woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full plus one-fifth of it and give to the one he has wronged. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of the atonement with which atonement is made for him. And every offering of a holy thing of the children of Israel which they bring to the priest shall be his. And every man's holy thing shall be his. Whatever any man gives, the priest shall be his. So speaking about confession and restitution. Again, confession, when we have done wrongs, we have sinned or transgressed or committed iniquity, to to confess means to be in agreement with. Lord, I am in agreement what you say, that this is wrong, that this is sin, that this is that this is transgression against your ways and your law. I confess it. It's not meaning that you make excuses or that you ignore it or that you try to reason with God, this is why I did it. You say it is wrong. And I confess it, Lord, and I'm in agreement with you that I've missed the mark, that I have sinned. So that is confession. And then there is to be restitution, as we see here in these verses. And so when you wrong somebody, did something wrong, and all that restitution, the law of restitution, and, and those civil laws were spelled out to us in the book of Leviticus, wasn't it? That restitution was made, and then a fifth was added to that. It was given to the person. If the person wasn't alive, then the kinsman redeemer, the nearest relative, it was to be given to, the restitution. If there is no nearest relative, then they were to give it to the priest, and they were to receive it. And so restitution was a picture of true repentance that had taken place, that I confess it is wrong, and I want to make things right. And so um, it's like if somebody was to borrow you know, your saw, and uh, they were working on their deck and they left it outside in the rain and all of a sudden it started rusting up and they bring it back to you and say, well, sorry, you know, here it is, too bad. You know, that isn't quite right, is it? Somebody who really says, I did you wrong 
and I know I need to make it right, and I'll take care of this, and I'll get you a new song. That's what is being spoken of here. And so that person is indicating that truly that they're sorry, and they've confessed it, and restitution is made. It's kind of like Zacchaeus. Remember the story of Zacchaeus in the Gospels? And I believe it's in Luke chapter 19. And in the story of Zacchaeus, uh, the Lord comes by, he's up in a tree, Zacchaeus is a tax collector. And we know that the Lord would say to Zacchaeus, I'm coming over to your house for dinner, Zacchaeus. And the Lord did. Zacchaeus gave his heart to the Lord because Zacchaeus came back and he said that if I have done anyone wrong, taken more than what I should have, and you see back in Jesus' day, tax collectors were known to be greedy. They were known to be thieves. Anything that they collected above their quota that they got to keep. And and they were generally very wealthy. So here's Zacchaeus. He said, if I've done anything wrong, then I will make restitution fourfold. He went beyond what the law had required. But what that showed was is the Lord really touched his heart. Jesus said, if you go to the altar to present your gift and you realize that you have wronged your brother or your brother has something against you, then go to that brother first and go to him, talk with him. And have that restoration be made and then come back and present your gift. And I pray for you and for me to do that. It, it, it takes a humble heart, doesn't it? For us to admit if we've done something wrong against somebody, to, to go to them and say, I have done wrong and can you forgive me, brother? And then our responsibility is we see that there is true repentance and confession that is made that to forgive them and to to restore that relationship that the Lord desires for us to have as brothers and sisters. If if we have somebody that comes to us and say, you know what, uh, you did me wrong, you hurt me, or and we weren't aware of it, that we need to make sure that that we be ones that we desire for there to be forgiveness and restoration and confession, whatever that situation might be. So here, this is what it's talking about, just treating others in the right way, confession and restitution and and true repentance that has been shown in these things that are spelled out. And then concerning here in verse 11, uh, talking about the uh, offering of, uh, of what is known as unfaithful wives or the offering of suspicion or jealousy. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Verse 11 saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully towards him, and a man lies with her carnally and is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there was no witness against her, nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous for his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and he shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephod of barley meal. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it because it is the grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. So in this text, what we're seeing now is the offering of this, the spirit of jealousy or unfaithfulness In the case of suspicion of adultery, the man brings his wife to the priest. He gives an offering. It's a grain offering, but there's no oil, there's no frankincense, which would, uh, the oil and the frankincense would sweeten up the grain offering as you took it, as you ate of it. With no oil, no frankincense, it would become very bitter. This is a bitter situation here, isn't it? And in the marriage relationship, If there is unfaithfulness, there is bitterness, isn't it? 
the lies, the cover-up, the immorality, the deception, the breaking of the marriage vow, all of that takes place when there's adultery that is committed. When there's the spirit of jealousy by husband or wife, it's bitter as well. When there's mistrust, when there isn't that loving and cherishing and communicating and praying with one another and really seeking the Lord together, there's bitterness that can be in the marriage situation and marriage relationship, isn't there? One of the things that the Lord has put on my heart that I'd like to do this fall is I'd like to do a couple's um, Bible study um, during the fall, during one of the nights of the week and just have couples come in and just talk about the marriage relationship and different aspects and different topics concerning marriage and husbands and wives, their responsibilities and cherishing and loving one another and communicating and all the problems that are dealt with and, and take place in the marriage relationship so that there is that trust and communication and looking to the Lord and that blessing that the Lord desires to have in the marriage relationship. So this is a better situation, isn't it? And so now we see that an offering was to be brought, a ceremony of an announcement was to be made. Verse 16, And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. Now this is the key here as we look at this. The woman was to be brought, and she was to be brought before the Lord. In any of us, the Lord is the only one that truly knows what is in our heart is what has taken place. And there can be those times where perhaps you try to cover things up from your spouse or cover it up from those at work or maybe cover it up from other brothers and sisters, whatever situation or circumstance that it may be. But one thing you can never do, you can never cover up from the Lord. He sees all and he knows all. And you can deceive others and you can mislead others and you can play the hypocrite, whatever it might be, but the Lord sees everything. And in this situation, she was brought before the Lord in verse 17. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall stand over the woman before the Lord, uncover the woman's head, put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse." And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse, and he shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. And may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. Then the woman shall say, Amen, so be it. Verse 23, Then the priest shall write these curses in a book. He shall scra scrape them into, off into the bitter water. And he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter her to become bitter. Then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, shall wave the offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the offering as its memorial portion, burn it on the altar, and afterward make the woman drink the water. And when she has made her drink the water, 
then it shall be, if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully towards her husband, that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter, and her belly will swell, her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. This is the law of jealousy, when a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy becomes comes upon a man, and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall stand the woman for the Lord, and the priest shall execute all this law upon her. Then the man shall be free from the iniquity, but that woman shall bear her guilt. You know, it's fascinating teaching the Bible verse by verse, isn't it? Because you get to these portions of Scripture, and it's like, okay, how are you going to explain this one? So... <laughs> She is set before the Lord, and, and the woman would drink the water, this bitter water. And if the guilt was, you know, she was guilty, she would be affected by the bitter water. Now, when it says her belly will swell and her thighs will rot, don't think that all of a sudden her thighs are, you know, being eaten alive by something and, you know, her belly starts swelling in that way. What it's speaking about is verse 28, that she may be free to conceive children. It's talking about bearing children. But... But also, if, if she was innocent, then, then everything, she was exonerated. I think as we look at this, and, and we can look at this and think it's kind of odd, it's kind of weird, or whatever it is, and what about the man? Here it acknowledges that the man, in the spirit of jealousy, really this was a way to protect the woman and the women in this ancient time that was under her husband's authority. But here's the thing that I want us to remember tonight. That when there is difficulty in the marriage it is a bitter situation and it's hard and it's difficult and I want us always to understand this that the Lord is the one that can bring healing to the situation in your marriage whatever it might be even in the case where there has been adultery and I know what God's word has to say but I know that he is big enough to where he can bring healing and whatever it might be And he can take away the bitterness and the unforgiveness and all those things. And I understand that it doesn't always work out. But if two people will say, you know what, whatever it is that we're going through, husband and wife, and humble themselves before the Lord and say, Lord, that we submit to you that he's able to do that work. And I pray that if any of you find yourself in that situation, that we're here to help you and to bring counseling to you, to minister to you what God's word has to say, and for you to understand this, that God is the one that can bring restoration and healing in that marriage situation. But it takes two people. It takes two people willing to say, you know what, Lord, we're going to humble ourselves and we're going to do this. And we're going to forgive each other and we're going to get rid of the bitterness and we're going to to live for you and we're going to start doing things right. And I know that there are situations that are difficult where it takes time. The trust has to be rebuilt and all these other things that take place. I understand that. I've been doing marriage counseling for 17 years. But I have seen God do miraculous things in marriages to where I've looked at it and say, there's absolutely no way that this marriage can be restored and continue on. And God did a marvelous work. And it's a good thing that they were depending on the Lord and not depending on me. Because God did that restorative work. And you know what? I'll talk to you till I'm blue in the face. Showing you God's word to help you in your marriage or whatever. 
But the thing is, again, it takes a willingness and a heart of two people that say, we're going to do this and we're going to do what's right. And we're going to trust in the Lord and allow him to do that healing work. Otherwise, that marriage situation will continue to be bitter and continue to fall apart and to get worse. So here we see the, the law concerning um, the unfaithful wives that are the spirit of jealousy. And then chapter 6, really quick, the law of the Nazarite. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take a vow of Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. And all the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days of fulfilled, for, for which he separated himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. And all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. And he shall make himself unclean even for his father or his mother, for his brother or sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. And all the days of his separation, he shall be holy to the Lord." You see, the Levites were dedicated to the Lord. So the Lord here, we're going to see as we go through the book of Numbers, is going to provide other ways for the other tribes to say, hey, we want to dedicate ourselves to the Lord in some way. Well, here is one way, a Nazarite vow. And, and the Hebrew word Nazar meant separated one, where they came up with Nazarite. And it could be that vow taken for a short time or for a lifetime. Now, Samson in the book of Judges was born a Nazarite. So that was a lifetime uh, commitment. Same with John the Baptist. But we know that Paul the Apostle, for example, took a, a Nazarite vow for a short amount of time. And so here we see that there were some qualifications, there were some, some um, things, requirements, that is, for this Nazarite vow. They were not to drink wine or to eat grapes or raisins. Don't be in the vineyards. Don't be drinking wine, anything like that. They were not to cut their hair. That's why you see pictures or movies depicting John the Baptist with this wild-looking man, his hair everywhere, hasn't seen a comb hit his hair for weeks or months or whatever because he was a Nazarite. And then thirdly, they were not to touch any unclean carcass. When you look at Samson's life, what happened to his life? He was born a Nazarite. He had great strength as the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him, but he broke all three of those requirements, didn't he? He was in the vineyard. He was partying and, and, and drinking wine when he shouldn't have been. He was one that uh, he touched a lion. He killed a lion, and then he went back, and there was a, a honeycomb in there, and he got some honey, so he touched a dead carcass. And then Delilah would cut his hair, and it said that the Spirit of the Lord departed from him, and his strength left him. Now, his strength wasn't in his hair. His strength was in his dedication to the Lord. I'll tell you what, folks. No drinking. That was for protection. Remember the priests were told, Aaron, you tell your sons that when they go into the tabernacle to minister that they're not to be drinking intoxicating drink, that they may distinguish between what is holy and unholy. We're to be filled with the Spirit, not to be filled with wine, as Ephesians tells us. So that's for protection, that we can distinguish. We don't want to be under the influence of not just wine or drugs, but anything of the world that's going to cloud our vision between what is clean and unclean, distinguish between what is holy and unholy. So that was for protection. Your hair to grow, that was for identification. 
They would know that that person had taken a Nazarite vow and then don't touch any dead body. That was for separation. We don't want to be involved with that which is dead. Now, Paul comes along to the Corinthian church and he says to be spiritually minded is life and peace. To be carnally minded is death. So those three aspects are very important for us to consider in our own Christian walk. You know what? We Protection, stay away from those things. Identification, you belong to Jesus Christ. And then don't be getting involved in those carnal things that bring death to your life. And so verse 9, And if anyone dies very suddenly beside him, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall save it. And on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest of the door of the tabernacle meeting. And the priest shall offer one as a sin offering, the other as a burnt offering, make atonement for him, because he has sinned in regard to the corpse, and he shall sanctify his head at that same day. And he shall consecrate to the Lord the day of his separation and bring a male lamb in the first year as for the trespass offering, but the former days he shall be lost because his separation was defiled. And so if you're sleeping next to your wife and she dies and you touch the body, then you had to shave your head and then come back, shave it again, and then you had to bring this offering to turtle doves and what is spelled out for us in verse 12. In verse 13, now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of separation are fulfilled, he, brought, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle meeting. And he shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb in its first year without blemish as a burnt offering, one ewe lamb in the first year without blemish as a sin offering, one ram without blemish as a peace offering, a basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, their grain offering with their drink offerings. And so you recall that Paul the Apostle, when he brought in the book of Acts there, in chapter 21, when he brought that offering to James in the church of Jerusalem, that James said, will you sponsor these guys that have taken a Nazarite vow and they're going to finish it? They went to the temple. That's what they were doing here. And it would be costly because they had to bring, you know, you, they had to bring um, other things. And so that was a costly thing. So Paul sponsored these guys so they can complete their Nazarite vow, and that's what he did. And then it led to Paul being arrested because he was wrongly accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple. But that's another Bible study. Verse 16, Then this priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice, a peace offering to the Lord with a basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall also offer its grain offering and its drink offering. Then the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it in the fire which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. When I read verse 18, I think of Dale Beckerman. Dale Beckerman in chemistry lab, he was goofing off and, you know, those burnt Bunsen burners, you know. He lit it and his hair went up. And if you've ever smelled burnt hair, it's awful, isn't it? Well, they would cut their hair and they would burn it. So it reminds me of him. And the priest shall take the boiled shoulder of the ram, one unleavened cake from the basket, one unleavened wafer, and put them upon the hands of the Nazarite after he shaved his consecrated hair. And the priest shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord, for the holy of the priest, together with the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering, after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. So this is the law of the Nazarite, who vowed the Lord the offering for his separation. Besides that, whatever else his hand is able to provide, according to the vow which he takes, he must do according to the law of his separation. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, verse 23, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, So this is the well-known uh, Aaron, Aaron um, the priestly blessing, 
We hear it a lot of times in benedictions and prayers in the church today, so I'm going to leave you with this tonight. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and the Lord lift His countenance upon you and give you peace. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for tonight's Bible study, and we ask that you would just, Lord, help us to be consecrated to you. May you just fill us with your peace, and may our face just have the countenance of Jesus Christ, Lord. We thank you that you keep us.